Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Welcome back to the Life After Business Podcast. This is episode 105. Today's guest name is Mike Reincheck, and I really enjoyed having him on the show because he told us the story about how he started his company in and around college and grew his digital marketing e-commerce business up to about 50 employees to eventually sell to a venture-backed high-growth company called Bright Health. And Mike was on the show today to describe how he grew it, some of the different things that he was doing to pivot his business while he was growing it. And then he was able to share with us how he went through the thought process of what should I do with my company? Should I bring on a huge capital investment and then continue scaling? Am I going to have to redo my business model? Is the services industry something I want to be in? And who could be a potential acquirer that will check a lot of the boxes that will make sense for him and his company? So he described the whole acquisition process with Bright Health, but then he explains what it was like emotionally for him to say, okay, well, I'm selling my baby, everything that I've grinded away for for years to grow and to build and to sell that to someone. What's that like when your company's name, Spider Trap, in his case, is no longer there and it's a new company and you're integrated into there and where do you fit inside that new business and the new growth strategy? And Mike is now on his new next stage of his life trying to figure out where he's going and why and he's able to give us a really interesting perspective from his his side of the world of what it's like to have built and sold a company and trying to determine what's on the forefront and some of the things that he wish he would have thought of besides just the money when he was going through the acquisition, there's other data points and there's other variables that you need to understand that will have an impact on your outcome and a life afterwards. So I really hope you enjoy the episode with Mike. He's got a ton of wisdom and a lot of gold nuggets that are available to you throughout the episode. So without further ado, here's Mike Reincheck. This episode of Life After Business is sponsored by GEXP Collaborative. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your timeframe to the buyer of your choice at the price you want. Morning, Mike. How you doing? Good, Ryan. How are you? Good, good. I'm excited. You and I have gotten to know each other over the last uh, couple of months. And um, we had a mutual friend, uh, Rob Gales, nice little shout out to him that introduced us and said, uh, you two have to meet. And he, he was right. <laughs> right from the, the very conversation, the very first phone call, um, I was really excited because uh, you and I have a lot of parallel parts of our journey and our stories at our age with the, the, the companies that we've been involved in. But for the listeners that have not gotten that uh, exposure to you so far, let's kind of go backing. Let's give them a little bit of a, a backdrop of, you know, where were you when you decided to jump in? Was it accidental or did you decide to become an entrepreneur? And then what was the business that you're in? Yeah, I've always been very entrepreneurial at heart. Um, even growing up, you know, growing up in the Midwest, growing up in Minnesota specifically, you know, people tend to, you know, go more towards the corporate side and, a tr you know, more traditional or typical path would be come out of college, do an internship with a, a fortune company, bigger company, and then work your way up. And for some reason that just didn't click with me. And so I was always very entrepreneurial. Um, and so going through college, I was trying to, you know, as a marketing major, I was trying to build up additional skill sets, but also pay my way through school, find additional revenue streams. So I taught myself engineering at the time and then eventually taught myself more digital marketing aspects and one of the revenue streams that I created was was consulting um, so I that was kind of my initial entrepreneurial path while I was working several other jobs kind of paying my way through school um, spent some time in the analytics firm as well and so if you take kind of the marketing the technology the analytics and you put it together merging out of college I founded a company called Spiretrap, which was definitely more geared towards digital marketing at the time, um, but then really started to morph as we grew into more of a technology company, really focused on the digital marketing aspects, but also larger scale engineering projects as well, design and engineering. So we worked closely you know, with a lot of bigger clients as we grew. We developed in the healthcare space. Uh, bootstrapped it initially and then grew it over time uh, in the Twin Cities and then eventually sold it to a company called Bright Health 
May of 2017. So it, it's so interesting, like, cause I, I, I've interviewed and I know a lot of people that kind of started in the marketing and online space. And why, why did you start consulting versus like, you know, cranking out a bunch of websites? I know a lot of people that got, cause a lot of those industries converge and we can probably get into that, but you know, a lot of people are cranking out websites and making a bunch of money versus consulting first. And they had to get, you know, there's kind of a convergence that happened between the two, you know, how did, how did that stuff jump in front of you? Yeah, it's a good question. Why I didn't go that direction? Because a lot of my consulting was building out websites and then making them better for clients at the time. When, this was back when I was in college. And so I actually did have a little dot com that I played with, you know, really when Facebook was was taking off, right, and really blowing up, that really focused on all the things going on in college campuses, but then externally as well. You and I actually, in our time together, we haven't really talked about that. So that's a new thing within my journey. So I did actually explore that for a little bit, but I really had a passion for working with, you know, multiple clients at the time, seeing different business models, meeting so many different people, but then also building really kind of world classes, I'd like to say products at the same time for those organizations. So what do you mean by products? Was it because, you know, the, the digital marketing these days is even different, you know, than the 10, 15 years ago when you started, you know, is it, was it actual software stuff for their website, e-commerce stuff, or was it, you know, like actual client conversions and SEO stuff? So it was both. So we really started on the digital marketing side of things. So SEO sponsored search, uh, email CRM type work, but then that grew very quickly, especially with some of our larger scale clients into uh, developing new applications, extensions of their website, e-com, um, you know, and then eventually, of course, grew into more and more mobile work as well. So, I mean, that huge spectrum of stuff must have been <laughs> tough to manage. Is like, how you know, what were some of the major milestones as you were growing the company, and the did the business model change? And you know, were, were you? intending to go any direction because I know you and I have talked about some how your business model had had evolved but you know where were, what were some of the reasons that you guys started to evolve and pivot or and like how are you handling all those different services yeah what's what's interesting is when you looked at the uh, agency the quote-unquote agency landscape in the Twin Cities what we actually did was was pretty tight it was really two pillars it was the design and engineering and then it was really the digital marketing arm that was it so we didn't do branding we weren't going to be your PR firm, right? So we were actually you know, very true to um, our DNA and who we were. And believe it or not, that was actually a big point of differentiation. The model was actually kind of interesting. So I started it in 2008, which everybody tells me is a horrible time. To start <laughs> but to your point around kind of the service model versus going, you know, building my own websites or, or having my own e-com websites, things like that is... It was actually interesting because because of the economy, we had a couple of different factors going on. We had, you know, these bigger corporations trying to find more nimble, cost effective, but yet high quality partners. At the same time, unfortunately, there were so many layoffs and exoduses that we had a large pool of talent as well. Hmm. Yeah. So, you know, we really prided ourselves on, you know, not outsourcing really much work at all over the course of 10 years. But we always had, especially early on when we were bootstrapping things and getting things going. And, and for the record, we bootstrapped it all the way through. We didn't actually take investment. But early on when capital was really tight, we did have resources that we could we could pull together to form a team really, really quickly. So that's, that's another aspect of how our model changed from kind of a a distributed outsource model to really insourcing everything very quickly and then growing from there, taking advantage of a lot of headwinds. Traditionally, people would see as headwinds uh, from an economy standpoint. Well, and how difficult, what were some of the pain points that you had of bringing in new projects, bringing in staff, it's always the chicken or the egg, and then being able to cash flow those projects in a way that you didn't have to, you know, have any kind of capital to to level that off and then how did that impact where you were going yeah what's interesting is you know i was young at the time i was just out of college working with a lot of fortune companies and in an advisory consultant role so you know very quickly on had to try to build the reputation of the organization of course of myself as well um, because in this space reputation is absolutely everything and there's very little room to recover from from 
any kind of major issue, if you will. So that was a, a big hurdle that I had to come overcome quickly. The nice thing about building a service model is there's some cash necessary. It's not easily scalable, but it's pretty low barrier to entry. So I didn't need to go out and raise $50 million. I was able to partner with other firms in the Twin Cities, you know, utilize their office space, um, and then scale to the point where you know we had our own office because you know, we were getting additional clients and our own clients. But a big thing for me was, you know, building relationships. And I know that um, that's always a challenge for a lot of organizations. So naturally, I just developed the ability, and I guess, kind of a strength to be able to go and meet a lot of different folks, identify sort of their business problems or their, their issues, and come up with a, a strategy to solve them. So yeah, there, there, was, there was just a lot, especially in hindsight, when you look back, there was a lot of just pure hustle kind of brute force versus pure strategy. And then as we grew, the strategy and the model had to take shape. Well, and so it's interesting because you hit on a couple of things where, you know, low barriers to entry because you're doing project-based work and it's a reputation and it's service delivery. But, you know, how, as you're bringing those clients on and you're managing, building the team and building the reputation and cash flowing it, did you, because how did that, how did you use those funds to build because you ended up building out reoccurring revenue, didn't you? Because you and I have talked about that. And, and how did that, how did you decide what route you're going to go and how you're going to do that? And, and the second part of that question, Mike, is did you do that for enterprise value reasons or did you do that because it was too much of a pain in the ass to, <laughs> to manage the projects and the cash flow? Yeah, so, so we developed that model pretty quickly. You know, when I was going through college, I worked on the client side for a while and just saw the retainer based recurring revenue side just being a beautiful thing. It was also great for me as a client because I knew what I was paying. And then we had a plan schedule for, you know, KPIs that we were trying to hit, you know, we planned the work accordingly. And so kind of bridging the gap, that was a really quick aspect of our model. And the model actually worked really nice because um, tying some of your questions all together, we had a lot of groups that would want us to build a website or a product. And like I said, they got larger and larger scale builds as we went along. But then also too, it was great because we could do the marketing aspects again, all within the realm of, of our digital efforts. And so it did help us from a evaluation standpoint. We, we could predict revenue. You're absolutely correct on that as well, but it became a natural progression of our project base and allowed us, you know, a big part of what we did was actually build long-term relationships with our clients. So we had retainers that lasted, you know, six, seven, eight years out of the 10 years that we were around. And so in an industry, especially that's hard to scale, building out recurring revenue was an aspect that we could actually scale. We could plan the work, forecast the work, and then staff against it. Whereas project work, as you know, is a little bit more complicated to manage resources again. Against to hit profitability, you have to be very tight in your process, how you build the team, how you structure relationships, <laughs> yeah. right? There's just a and lot of how you barriers. bill and collect money. <laughs> yeah, and then getting paid at the same time. You're absolutely right. Yeah, it's it's just not as easy as as most would think. Well, was there any like so you said you were on the client side at one point. What you know, where did, where did you get the idea and how how did you come up with the pricing? Because I'm just so many people say that they can't build up reoccurring revenue and you're in old industry. Is huge. I mean, there's a lot of people that still just do project based and they never ended up doing it. So, you know, how did you get to that point? You know, and where did you get the ideas? Um, and then how did you price it? Yeah. So when I, when I was in college and I was studying both partners that we were working with and then just looking at the general landscape, I really saw an opportunity to be more nimble, to do things slightly different and you know, I had good relationships, so check that box. Um, managing value, which will lead to the second part of your question, was always something that I, you know, I struggled with seeing, and I know a lot of people on the client side will struggle with seeing value at times with their with the partners that they work with, not just in kind of the technology or the service industry. And so, building a company that was really based off of relationships, responsiveness, and results—that was kind of the three R's that I that I try to program the organization around was really, I think, key to our success. And what's, what's interesting, sadly, there's so many people out there doing this type of work. And a lot of people have honestly a lot of bad experiences as well. So if you stay true to those three R's, 
you can really start to define where I'm going next, which is the value of what you bring to the table. And hopefully you can put a price tag on that. The hard part is, like any organization, you probably face this too, one, and maybe it's our Midwestern values, right? But it's hard to put a price tag on what you actually do. <laughs> and ask for money, right? Yeah. It's, hard, it's hard to do that. So I think, you know, there was obviously times throughout, you know, almost a decade where I'm sure people didn't feel like we brought enough value. There was other times where, you know, we were working a lot on the coasts, on both coasts. So we were told many times, you know, you guys are three times cheaper than what we would traditionally pay. Do you know that? And like, well, that's a great relationship, right? Going back to the, the first <laughs> saying that we completely understand, let's just add it to the value of what we're doing. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Put that in the plus column. So I think for us, what was nice was um, I had a you know great CFO as well that was able to, to track profitability. So we actually developed some of our own in-house tools uh, using it into a product, product. Um, and we had some great team members that actually built that out, turned it into some IP for us, um, or we were able to track profitability on every single project, track profitability on employees, forecast, to your point earlier and your question earlier, forecast incoming work, where are we at capacity-wise, where are we at financially, tie all those things together so that we could see Hey, our pricing is, is perfectly aligned. But we also, you know, of course, did kind of the third-party research as well. That's super interesting. So that kind of goes in as we we're going down the, the storyline here. So um, what are some of the milestones that you're able to share from, you know, the revenues or employee count or whatever it might be that kind of give you the give us the 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 peer into kind of what the size of your organization was? And then, you know, with the IP and with the staff that you had, what were things I mean did you intend to create IP out of value creation or was it more of just because it was easier to run the company? So kind of a two part question. So let me start with the second question first, you know, building this IP was really meant to more efficiently and effectively run the company sort of the direction that you're heading. And there's a lot of things to sort of unpack in that from keeping people sane. We tried to, which, you know, help reduce hopefully turnover as well. Because it was always hard to find talent, right? Technology, mm-hmm. talent is, they're generally just not waiting on the street for you to pick up the phone and call them. But it also helped make us run a really smart business financially. And I guess the last point that I would say is all that came together, hopefully, to produce value for the client. So, you know, we use off-the-shelf tools in the past, kind of project management software, if you will, things like that. But then ultimately ends up, ended up building our own custom solution that really met the needs of what we were trying to do, which is always an interesting project to turn your focus inward versus a lot of the work that we do is externally, of course, with mm-hmm. the milestones that we hit, you know, as an entrepreneur, I, I, you know, it's interesting. We used to do a thing that I loved kind of starting and, and pushing along throughout the years. That's why our trap was, we used to do champagne pops throughout the year. Did I ever tell you about that? Uh, so, no, I don't want to hear. <laughs> so, so we, we would gather around one of the cool milestones for us was we moved into some really cool space in the twin cities, um, right in the heart of kind of the downtown area, big sign, can't miss it. Really cool open space, rooftop patio, all that fun stuff. So really great location, you know, going from sharing and then growing office space to then transitioning to this beautiful plush office space, but still holding true to who we were. was really cool, but we had a beautiful staircase. And anytime that we hit a milestone, whether it's through the year or, you know, our first cool client in this space, what I would do is bring the team together, have the individuals that led that initiative that created that milestone, give a quick talk. We pop some champagne and then we would, you know, have a glass, have some apple cider or whatever. And then we'd go back, you know, usually it's in the late afternoon. <laughs> <and we'd laughs> like 10 o'clock in the morning, champagne. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but then we'd go about our day and it was, and it was beautiful. We really focused a lot on culture and, and we and myself as an entrepreneur are so focused on the grind and the next milestone that I, I rarely celebrate. I think I was a little bit superstitious, right? I think growing up playing hockey or whatever, I was, I was always really superstitious and moving on to the next thing. But, you know, for us, hitting first employee was a big deal, right? I'm bootstrapping this thing. Um, you know, it was getting our first big client 
getting our first big retainer. It's like, oh my gosh, this thing is actually becoming real. Mm-hmm. I mentioned moving into the office space. Um, you know, I what was what was really fun is you know we started winning a lot of awards for our culture, and I think we won six or seven Minnesota Best Places to Work awards, and that comes straight from our people. It doesn't come from me or you know, I didn't pay anybody off to have it kind of thing, right? Like, it, <laughs> it was very, I think a very genuine thing. And, and we were fortunate in that sense. My model was always, and I think in the agency world, this was also a, a differentiator is, you know, we don't do what we do to win awards, but we always appreciate when people recognize us for our great work, for our great people, for our great clients. So, well, so how many people did you have at the top? We were, we were just pushing 50. Wow. Yes. I hover right underneath that 50, the, the 50 mile mark, right? <laughs> That's right. Which is a whole different, <laughs> right. For, for a lot of technical reasons. Right. Well, so, you know, Mike, as you're growing this and you know, what was the, what was your, you know, when you said you're focused on the, the goal in your mind, what was the goal and how did you know if you were going to be there and how did this triggering event come into play that, and, and did you plan it? And how did that whole thing come in, in, in your future, you know, plan of what you were trying to build? So I think I was smart enough, uh, humbly speaking in the beginning to, I really wanted to build something that was first of all scalable. And I think that was also another milestone is we hosted a lot of big events. And when, you know, people would reach out to us, that was always a, a milestone or kind of a humbling experience, if you will. So I knew that I wouldn't, necessarily retire with Spiretrap, right? They didn't want to create necessarily just a lifestyle business. I think there was opportunities to create culture around that, but I knew at some point there would be, if I was lucky enough, some kind of exit along the way. So that's where, you know, I called it Spiretrap and not Mike Co. Mm-hmm. Our great people could not be, you know, have a shadow cast on them if I walked in a room for a meeting that we could scale the value. So if Mike's not in the room, is this going to be a good meeting? So we really tried to scale as, you know, we hired a great account service team and really made the focus of the company the people versus a person. Did you, so I'm curious because I think scaling and growing is fun as heck. And first of all, there's a lot of good reasons to do, especially if you're like an efficiency nut, which I think you are as well as like, it just is fun to build a well-oiled machine and just continue growing. And did, and knowing it's like, I think a lot of people I've, I've heard Mike, were like, I'm going to grow a great company that's scalable and someone will want to buy it someday. And that's kind of the way they approach it versus a very intentional situation. Did this, you know, where did this triggering event of you selling come around? Was it, did you run into capital needs or service issues or did someone approach you and did that fit in line with where you had intended to go? Yeah, we had, I would say not initially, we had been watching the marketplace and a lot of our competitors started getting acquired. Um, you know, there's always an insourcing versus outsourcing push on the client side. We're seeing more of an insourcing. Um, we're fortunate enough to have, you know, organizations approach us throughout the year. A lot of it was me looking at those kind of environmental factors along with myself. I mean, doing anything for, for 10 years, especially nowadays, is a long time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also looked at the opportunity. So, you know, I was excited about the prospect. I had been advised by a lot of MA groups, um, but it wasn't a strategic initiative until probably I would say two or three years prior to selling, you know, once you hit that seven mark, seven year mark yourself as an entrepreneur, that's a long time. That's a lot of sleepless nights. That's a lot of stress. (laughs) Maybe it's time to, pass the baton, you start looking at different options and opportunities, and then you've built a machine. And then you start looking every single year going, do we do I have another year left in me? And I think it was a very pragmatic approach saying, we had another year of growth, we had a best year again, looked at the marketplace, looked at potential suitors, started going through sort of our own process, and then had the opportunity with Bright to really, you know, take hopefully a lot of the strengths of the organization, roll them into bright, you know, create additional value, do great work in, 
in a very challenging and demanding field being the health insurance space, disrupt the market, be a part of a great, great team there. So the opportunities and kind of the stars really just aligned along with sort of the strategic vision that I had earlier on when I well, first started. And what, what I find is interesting though, is that you started two to three years or at least thinking about it, right? I mean, I know so many people and even whether there's clients I'm working with or the stories that I've heard where, I mean, it's just a random out of the blue offer and then it just recalibrates what they're doing and then they go down this route and in they just don't, they didn't know that the stars aligned or they just, it was one star and two of them yeah. aligned versus a bunch. So I think you seeing an opportunity as a result of being aware and kind of keeping your temp, you know, the pulse on the, the marketplace, you know, was there resources or people that you were looking at and that they kind of had you looking at that or was it just a, na- a nature of kind of who you were? I think it was a nature of who I was. I think we were, but we were also fortunate to have a good internal team that had a good beat on the marketplace. I also think this is a very small type movie, especially in the twin cities area, but then you start really listening to people, you know, I was listening to some M and A advisors of mine, some friends and mentors, you know, talking valuations, we gone through a couple of exercises, just seeing what the business would be worth, what it could be worth. You know, we started exploring potential pivots and things like that, which ultimately didn't make sense because the machine had gotten so big. What were some of the, sorry to interrupt, what, what was some of the, the, when you, the, ahas that you might have had with the valuations like was it how companies were valued and how things like the ip that was built for original like you know efficiencies is now potentially worse so how did what was some of the reconciliations you had in your mind of what value meant i I think it was it wasn't actually from a valuation standpoint i think it was good but i think there was just a realization that you know as as i had explored different models we weren't a SaaS business we had some ip we had some recurring revenue. We had a great book of really great clients. Um, we had a really great team, good process. Um, but the business itself, you know, service businesses, um, a lot are hard to make margin on, which again is a lot of the things that we just talked about. We were really smart about that. But they, but they don't tend to be high-valued organizations. Some are, but not, not a lot of them. And that was a harsh realization for me, which is, again, one of the things I think that excited me about Bright was you know, really hyper growth, great organization, highly scalable organization. It was a lot of the key learnings that and a lot of the things that I struggled with over the years trying to scale and build Spiretrap, they inherently had within the product, within uh, sort of their marketplace. I, I would say that there was, you know, there was a lot of other learnings too about myself as an entrepreneur, I had to take a hard look in the mirror and say, you know, the value of this company and our people, if I keep pushing myself or if we make too drastic of a pivot, um, that is also going to create other challenges and for our clients as well. Um, go ahead. Were you going to say something? No, no. I, I, I think it's interesting because it's how hard do you pivot and should you continue being in this business or should you continue and in some other, because I see a lot of people who are in my old industry. I mean, and they, they're like, you're told to be in this other part of the industry. And so you, then you start redoing your business model and you should have just maybe stayed in your own lane and then had a different kind of perceptor, perception of where that's going to take you. Well, think about this. I mean, we tried building kind of a quote unquote series of products. We tried, you know, additional sort of strategic partnerships. And those things actually all detracted from the focus of our organization. Um, you know, even when we were trying to build our own products, we ran into cultural issues internally because, you know, a certain group was really working on cool, sexier things, right? Why am I stuck doing this? Or, you know, so it became very much a distraction to us. But to your point about when we were really humming along, we were really staying true. Just like I said, we really done a good job at, despite trying different things along the way, which I actually don't think is, is wrong, but we tried other things and we tried to be strategic about it, um, knowing that we would have backstops or knowing that, you know, whatever we did wouldn't, wouldn't kill us as an organization, but it definitely would hurt us. Right. So it take a step back. So, I mean, that was a key learning for us is, you know, if we're going to actually scale, Ryan, like we got to go raise some capital mm-hmm. or we got to, re- you know, because for us, we built out a great sales team, but you would really have to ratchet that up. You would have to start looking across the country deeper. And we were, but even deeper. 
looking internationally, right? Um, looking at bigger size, more complicated deals. And that would have taken a lot of horsepower to, to pull off. So how did, you know, when all the stars aligned for Brett, how did you come across them? And, you know, you, I think you had mentioned um, in a previous conversation that you know typically a lot of people will roll into another agency, which affects like how you get your money, what the upside is, why you want to do it um, versus a very interesting purchaser like Bright. You know, how, what were the things that you saw that made that situation um, appealing to you? Yeah. So I knew one of their co-founders uh, well throughout the year, the years leading up to that, really respected them the work that he had done building large scale organizations, um, his leadership style and the teams that he's been able to put together. And so we, we had been friends, we had been colleagues in the past and bright actually was a client of spire trap initially through that relationship, really working with them as they're standing up the business basically from scratch. So when we first got engaged with them, they had essentially a brand and had, um, we're working on just closing their series a, which is a huge monumental series a. So obviously, you know, off to a great start doing a lot of really great things and all the things I just spoke to, I think started to manifest. And so there was a lot of excitement for me. We were doing a lot of great work with them and we were actually already looking at, Hey, how do we, um, you know, how do we expand this relationship beyond just what we're doing here? So it was a delicate, Yet, um, I think a natural conversation, if you will, where it's like, hey, how do we expand our relationship? Oh, by the way, we also have this other process that we're looking at potentially exiting. It's, it was kind of a, you know, a delicate conversation. Right. When do you bring it up, right? <laughs> right. And how do you bring it up? You know, because you could lose, they were a great client of ours. Um, you know, you risk losing them. But at the same time, you know, I, I wasn't, I had been doing the service model, the agency world for a long time. I wanted uh, to learn more selfishly about, you know, that management structure, scaling a business, the work that they were doing. I also had a big passion for healthcare as well. A lot of the work, as I mentioned earlier, was in the healthcare space. So it was really you know, a great, great fit, great organization. Um, and so it made a lot of sense. So I'm curious then as you, you know, as, as things kind of come together and you talk about the process of actually going through the, you know, the, the courting and then the actual closing is, you know, you've repeated many times over the course of this interview, you know, we wanted to stay true to who we were. You were really huge on culture and, you know, you had very specific services that you were doing to your wide range of clients. What did that look like when you're selling to a, one specific client with one specific Deliver and their 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 intentions of their marketplace and their service deliverables are different. So, yeah. how did that how did that structure? I mean, what was that like internally, and like how that how did that actually unfold? Yeah, so I was excited about it, but we knew going into it that some people would be less excited. You know, just because it's it's when you're going through a process like this, as you know, it's not something you can speak openly about, which is which is a hard thing to do. That was, mm -hmm. that was hard. And I, I know it's hard for a lot of entrepreneurs out there is to be able to be open when it's a very close conversation. So we tried to, you know, if we went to a different agency, there was a huge amount of risk of the unknown, right? Likely wouldn't know, but you wouldn't know the work and the style of work. Um, whereas this was knew the organization, um, knew a lot of the people, the work that was being done, but we also thought, you know, it might be a challenge because we're now working on one, you know, one essential company, right? You're within one company. And, you know, we were looking at fast growing companies. So, you know, they're developing, they're developing culture, um, they're developing the team. So there's variables that we didn't necessarily have, you know, in hindsight at Spiretrap because we had been around for so long and we had developed a culture. How did that, how did that impact the value of the business when like, cause you know, there, there's a lot of different situations here. Some context of my question is that, you know, like I hear a lot of the stories um, of a, a client buying the service provider because it makes sense because they can scale and they can use the, the talent and the services or the IP or whatever it might be on their account. And it just financially makes sense because they can make a return on the investment over the course of three to six years because 
of the nature of them not having to spend that money anymore. How did that impact the value of the company or how you structured that? And how did they look at the value differently? And then as in like, do they, what do they do with your clients? Right. So like, I'm just making, like, if you have a hundred clients and now you're just down to one, you know, yeah. that cash flow, what did they do with that? I mean, did they keep, did you guys keep it? How did, how did the whole thing, did, yeah. does that make, does my question make sense? Yeah, it does. I, I, I think the value for Bright, from my perspective, was a couple of things. One, a lot of what they're doing, and you can read about it, is about speed to market. And so when you're building a, an organization that quickly, I mean, standing up a health plan as quickly as they did is simply unbelievable. Right. And the work that they're doing around scaling takes a lot of horsepower. So for them, it made a lot of sense to bring those resources internally. And there was other things that went on in that course. You know, it was a there was a rebranding that happened, went into additional markets. A lot of which I'm incredibly proud of the team on is, you know, we really helped, I think, provide horsepower to be able to accomplish the rebrand, going to additional markets, standing up another product, um, going through for the first time, a full plan year, um, going through open enrollment, having for the first time re-enrollment numbers, you know, which ultimately comes down to engagement, value, things like that for Bright. So I, I think that there's a lot of upside to be able to accomplish the scalability aspects that they're looking to do. But at the same time, you know, longstanding clients that we had, that was sort of a hard conversation because we had worked with a lot of these groups for so long. I think most that I talked with specifically got it. They understood it. They were excited about the opportunity. Uh, we tried our best. The team really, I think, focused really hard. You know, they did a lot of wind down work, making sure that the projects that we had were completed, uh, making sure as much as we could that you know our clients found a new home. But that was something that was I didn't think about maybe as much would be the challenges of, of transitioning clients. And I think final thought was kind of a key learning for me is thinking about how hard it is to start a business, right? Like guys like you and I, we know what it takes to start a business. Like, oh my gosh, this is a ton of work. <laughs> Who would have thought that, you know, winding down a business as it's being rolled up would be so much work at the same time. And it, and it absolutely is. So, so you did actually then wind down all your other clients besides, right? Wow. So yeah, I mean, in maybe you can speak a little bit like on the emotional aspects of what, cause winding down is one thing, right? It's the technical ways of winding down, which, you know, you could very robotically explain how to do that. But you know, when you think about all the work that you went into building the business and keeping those yeah. clients and reputation, what, what was that like going through that? Yeah, it's, it's a roller coaster of emotions because you're so excited because as an entrepreneur, you cross the finish line, right? And you cross it into a great organization. It's a great deal. Um, you know, at the same time, though, your, your brand really doesn't exist. It doesn't live on, which was something I did give some thought to, but maybe not enough of, is how would I feel if a company that I had just lived, you know, for the last 10 years no longer existed? Because... Right, your identity is very much wrapped in the work that you do in this company that you build. Everywhere you go, people would ask you, how's work going? How's Spire Trap? Any new clients? You know what I mean? There was, it was kind of really tied to who you are. So I'll say, you know, especially now, um, no longer being at Bright, that's been something during this, um, this time off that I've really have given a lot, a lot of thought to, and it's been challenging. And that was emotional aspect that, I don't know, maybe you, you read it in textbooks and in business school. I didn't No, Yeah. They, they don't have any of that stuff out there. It's like, you know, it, it, it's so bizarre. I mean, like, <laughs> I mean, they turned my old building into a church. So <laughs> like there's like stained glass windows on it and they've got a lot of, have a lot of prayers that get, got rid of the cursing and the, the, right. Yeah. Right. But it was just like that alone. Like when they take down the sign and stuff like that of the building where it's like, it's a bizarre feeling, but you know, the one thing that I did have that was slightly different is all of my clients stayed because that was why the, the our, you know, that was why our, our purchaser bought us was for our clients. So I couldn't, I mean, were you involved? I mean, that would have been even harder having to essentially 
talk to your clients about through that? I mean, what was, how did you go through that? Yeah, I think the first step was we always um, were very transparent and open and honest with our clients, which everybody should be, right? But mm-hmm. it's not always the case. And, and so I think it, again, I think they were, they were excited for us. There was a lot of questions around, you know, what does this mean? We tried to work through that, tried to give them good options. So I think what we had spent a good amount of time on was trying to come up with a, a true game plan uh, for managing to the best possible outcomes given the transition that we were facing. And you know, overall, I think that that went really well. I mean, we stayed true to true to everything that we felt like was promised and contractually, contractually obligated to complete as well. How did the how did your culture change then? Is I just think about you know, like with, we had, we had a service-based business too, right? So, I mean, you have tons and tons of customers with dynamic, you know, so your employees get to experience different things all day long, you know? And so I can only imagine the challenge that in, you know, internally what that had with certain employees where they're just talking about one thing all day long now. I mean, did, how did that change the dynamics of the, the, the culture fit? Well, I think post-acquisition. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think for us, you know, a key takeaway was because of the wind down work and the amount of work necessary, I think, you know, as we reflected, it would have been ideal to, I think, accelerate some of that. And I think that that would be a key physical and emotional takeaway just because, you know, you got one company that's going very quickly and scaling. Meanwhile, you're trying to be very diligent and thoughtful and again, pragmatic about how you're managing another book of business as it eventually winds down. Mm-hmm. Um, so that just created a lot of dynamics and, and additional challenges that, um, you know, and again, in hindsight, you just had to, had to spend way more time on than, than I think. Anybody well, it's bizarre. I mean, I can only imagine for all of you and your employees, I mean, you're essentially like grieving and, you know, you've got this, you know, process that you have to go to, like put something to bed while you're trying to like, I'm assuming all these other people are scaling, just raised millions of dollars with a series A. I mean, like those two dynamics alone just got to be tough. Yeah, and, and there was a lot of excitement, right? New team. Um, we were working with a, the other part of the team was in Austin, Texas. So, you know, people were spending time down there. Um, it's there. There was just a, a lot, um, and so I think, you know, I definitely think that there was a lot of growth that happened with a lot of individuals. I think myself included, a lot of learnings along the way. But I think that that's what for individuals that have gone through the sales process it is so invaluable because you see pros and cons of deal structure, right? Um, you get this better than anybody. You see the emotional side, you know what to think about before it gets there, right? It's like anything else. So that experience for me was absolutely invaluable as I look to kind of gear up towards the next thing. So, yeah. And what, what, are, what are some of the things that you, you know, the other side that you would think about, you know, and you and I have talked about this as in like, you know, there's a specific reason that people buy companies, right? A purchaser will buy a company for a lot of reasons. And there, it, it, there's just two sides of an equation and they're all good people, but everybody's just have different intentions and different KPIs and reasons are to grow and deploy their capital. And, but you don't realize until after the fact what all those different things are and you don't realize how those different deal structures or different things would impact you know, you, is there, is there certain like variables or key points that you realize now are important to explore that you wouldn't have, or you had no idea before? You know, I think that there's, when I was running Spire Trap, trying to isolate variables. So, you know, things like earnouts, trying to understand, you know, potential ups and downs and implications, what you can control, can control, um, you know, what do you, where do you, what is your legacy going to be? Um, do you still want to drive by your sign or your building? Um, do you want to stay involved in the organization and for how long, right? Are you, are you going to retire with that organization? You know, there's a lot of thought that goes on to the people and the culture and trying to get that as good of a match as possible or have other offsetting variables, right? So if there's a difference in culture, the work or whatever, having offsetting variables, um, you know, I but think just define what you mean by offset and variables. Cause I, I think I've got an idea, but like, what do you, what do you mean specifically? Well, for us, I could have spoke to it earlier is, 
you know, we understood the grind of kind of the agency world and, you know, the pressure of the client world as well and that clients would have. And so we really tried to offset with as many things as possible that still made financial and, and, and you know, just general sense. So everything from the space to bonus structures, things like that. So I think, you know, we understood the good and the bad and the ugly of our organization and then mm-hmm. try to offset things or hire against that or have a recruiting slash hiring, you know, structure to, to really offset what we saw as challenges. And I think for any organization, especially just generally speaking with any acquisition, you know, thinking through if, you know, if retention or, or anything is, is a key initiative, you know, how do you hedge to the downside? And I think just generally speaking, even with a technology play or, you know, taking something to a new market, right, you always need to hedge for that, that downside potential. And, you know, I think thinking through that in advance is, is key. Well, yeah. And I, I think you, it's interesting how you put that too. And um, it's also about being able to understand what variables are correlated. So that way, we got a lawnmower here. That's awesome. <laughs> um, so it, it's about Are you cutting the grass while we're having this conversation. Yeah, right. Yeah, multitasking. <laughs> um, so it, it's about understanding what variables are correlated, right? So you you know potentially selling to a managed service provider, another one would you would keep in the grind, you would keep in the same situation, but there would have been more of an earnout or like how legacy impacts when you get your money. It's just like understanding what variables and data points are related is difficult until after the fact well let me can i add on one thing yeah yeah no absolutely i would say correlated and what actually matters ah yep on both sides on both sides right well and what are what are some of the things that you realized were you realized what mattered and then that were correlated that you might not have known well i think i think we talked a little bit about some of the correlation i think i'm still thinking about you know, reflecting on what matters, because I think, you know, for us, um, you know, what mattered was so ingrained for such a long time that myself personally, I I should have spent more time on just generally what mattered. And I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. I think, you know, when deal structures come together, there's a lot of variables. Um, I just think as a leader, you know, in hindsight, I really had to learn to, or I would have learned and now have learned what, what variables actually mattered. Um, but I think, you know, what's interesting is for us, we had a lot of research. We had a lot of, um, you know, basically documentation and reporting of what mattered and experience. And I think that just that key learning of, missing or not understanding the correlation i think was a was something to think more about well and it's tough a lot of people don't know that until after the fact when they have come out the other side and they realize actually what the 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 lens on the other side looks and it's it's difficult because they all are intertwined and that's why i think you know having more options to and more of a time to process it is important because you won't know until after the fact that's exactly right. And, and that's, that I think is, is a challenge in of itself is that you really don't know all the variables and sometimes you don't know what matters until you actually get there. So I think that's where, you know, trying to do as much planning upfront, I think is key to, to minimizing that. So as you've been, you know, into the second part of this, what is, what have you realized and how have you gone through identifying what matters to you now? now that you're looking at, you know, you've taken some time off and, you know, what's been some of the big takeaways as you've you've reflected and looking forward? Well, I think to me, what matters, you know, building a company, being an entrepreneur, then going into hyper growth, you know, I expanded my personal life, my family as well. And so I think um, having this time off to re-engage with, you know, my young family and, and really enjoy that time, I think has been priority number one for me. And that's been, that's been a key learning as I go forward is to, you know, have a better sense of, you know, I was always taught a great mentor of mine taught me, it's not about balance, about integration. And, you know, I think that that's a key learning. I think just reflecting on my passions and my skill sets, because I was doing something for so long and I was running Spire Trap, 
I really am enjoying this time to be able to re-engage with folks, to meet with folks, meet people like yourself, right? Spend time having these types of conversations, which I think are a lot of fun. I often get asked, I thought you were taking time off. I'm like, this is too much fun. Like, <laughs> like this is just too much fun. Um, what does so, integration mean for you? I, I don't know. I'm figuring that out right now. I don't, I, you know, people ask me, what are my hobbies? I'm like, well, I recently dusted off my golf clubs, like literally dust off my golf clubs. But what it's supposed to mean, what I'm aiming towards is that throughout your life, I truly believe that the percentages can and should change, whether it's family, work, travel, hobbies, religion, you know, whatever the spectrum of your life encompasses, but you fill those buckets, you take time, you set aside, you pre-plan vacations, right? You, you shut off your phone, you have a career that's very engaging, that's very fulfilling, right? Like that's ultimately what we're all striving for. Again, easier said than done. But I think a big learning for me, honestly, Ryan, was that it's not balance. It's not one or the other. You really mm. got to find a way to encompass these other things in your life. Well, I think that's huge too. And, and I, I think the ability to find that correct integration afterwards is tough and also, also rewarding. And did you, did you find it or like, did you know that ahead of time? Cause I think, you know, what I've found from a lot of people I interview or even myself is I had it completely integrated and it was a shitload of fun. And then I didn't realize that it was completely integrated and my whole world got thrown out of whack. And then it, be, and, it and then I didn't know my new integration and in, in the way it should be. Yeah, that's, that's really honest. And I, and I had a lot of that, you know, when I was first getting going, it was easier um, in some aspects because, you know, life, believe it or not, was as simple, right? Coming out of college than it likely will ever be. It seems complicated at the time, right? But it was, a <laughs> it was really a great time to start a company because you could be so selfish, right? You could be so selfish and just use, you know, strategy and brute force to build it. But, you know, as life goes on, there's other, other variables or other things that go on that you need to spend time to think about. And I think the stress, you know, by the time, you, know, you get married and children and all these other things happen. Um, you know, the machine is so large that it's, it's, you know, if you're fortunate enough to have scaled, right, maybe have somebody take it over or you know, create a different strategy, it can be less stressful. But I think for a lot of small companies like we were, it became more stressful because the burn rate's larger, right? Your mm -hmm. team that you just built becomes more complex in itself so it's more time consuming in a lot of different ways even if it's just mentally so for me it was a challenge because even if i was there physically i would still be you know mentally maybe not in my personal life or other areas as well so i think i went through probably a progression similar to you where i thought i was being a superhero and doing all these things when really it was a harsh realization to realize great work is going well but other things are suffering because of it well, and I think that's one, you know, I, I very well said, but it's also, you know, what I struggled with was like, you know, all the people that you work with and like, you're the, like, I had the correct amount of leadership in my life. I had the correct amount of decision-making and strategic planning and execution and all of those perfect amounts of all those different things that I really enjoyed disappeared after I sold the business or we sold the business. I and mean, it was like, it just, that environment disappeared. Yeah, I, I, I think I get that. I think I went through different stages of that when I was growing the business. And then when you sold, when you sell, you see different sides of people and yourself and other things that happen. And then, you know, when you're in kind of this period like I am, where you're just kind of taking some time, you know, understanding who's there, great, you know, a lot of fortunate supporters, things like that. But I think, you know, key learning for me for that aspect was trying to create business karma over time, trying to, trying to do right for people, do right for the community, things like that. But again, some of that is easier said than done because you're moving so fast and you're so focused on running the business. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think that definitely, you know, challenges, good or bad, right, or opportunities, good or bad, lead to, to really seeing who's in your corner, you know. I definitely think, and that's something I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't think about as they're going through a process as well. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. And 
just, you know, for the listeners, what did you intend to stay with Bright? And did you, you know, now that you're not there, you know, what, what is, what is on the next step for you? What is the life after look like for you? No, that's a good question. So we have been planning, um, for my exit for a little, little time towards the end of last year and then rolling into this year, started those conversations really looking at the milestones that bright was trying to hit and then you know what i was trying to hit as well so you know you scaling the business um really proving the model um helping helping build out kind of the final aspects so that now they can go become a much bigger organization was really something that i was passionate about and so i think we were really excited about accomplishing those things at the same time you know myself personally had a growing family and just actually looking in the mirror and being realistic and so the other components of integration that we just spoke to, it was just a good time to, to pass the baton and, and move on, but still, you know, big fan of, of that team, the group, uh, you know, I still check in with them from time to time. They're still doing great things. And for me, you know, that's a great question. I'm, I'm excited about the conversations that I've been having. Uh, I'm excited. You know, most people, think that I'm just going to start something and I would say that's probably pretty low right now, just given all the things that are going on in my life and the opportunities that are out there. So, you know, I'm, I'm probably excited about joining another growth company, helping them scale, um, helping them move towards maturity. Um, and those are the conversations that I'm having right now. So if you were to take all the different things that we talked about, the kind of your whole journey and it, maybe i don't know if there's something you want to highlight or there's something we haven't you know touched on that you want to make sure you leave our listeners with what do you think it'd be i think i think a lot of if i could tie a bow around this conversation i think a lot of entrepreneurs think pride themselves in being strategic but i don't think and this is where you and i i think hit it off so well i don't think that they really think through exits other than seeing dollar signs enough, right? So really being as diligent as you have been to run the business, build the business, really thinking about the emotional side where you're looking to go. But then one last learning for me is to your question just now is what's next? I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't think about what are you going to do afterwards? Great. Are you going to actually enjoy being retired? Right. Are you what, gonna, does retire, what does retired mean? What does that mean? Right? Do you, are you going to go join boards? Do you have those lined up? Have you already thought about those things? Right. So, giving some thought to, to kind of what's next, or or where you're going to go after the acquisition, or after your earnouts are done, or whatever it ends up looking like, I think is is probably something. You know, you I'm sure this is kind of what the whole podcast is about. I mean, you could spend years talking about those things. And realizing that they there's a lot of data points and variables that matter that are outside of the dollar amount, and they're all correlated to to understanding what that means after the fact. <laughs> for sure, for sure, absolutely. Uh, Mike, what's the best way for a listener to get in touch with you? So obviously, you can hit me up at LinkedIn. This is Mike Reinchek, um, Twitter as well, and then also feel free to reach out and email. It's mryncheck, R-Y-N-C-H-E-K at gmail.com. Cool, man. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I had a blast. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks for sticking in there and listening to the entire episode with Mike. I hope you enjoyed his story as much as I did. So here's my main takeaways is that Mike and his ability to say and articulate the difference between balance and integration. And I think the thing that I recommend for all owners is understand what your balance and integration is. Obviously, according to Mike, balance is unhealthy because you, you don't want to necessarily have give and take, but you want integration with all the different buckets that are available in your life. So if you determine what buckets are important, like family, work, leadership, charity, fun, activities, travel, whatever those things are, what's important to you right now while you own the company? And then how are those different integration points going to be different after you sell? Whether it's the third third party or the internal transition, whatever that transition or acquisition process looks like, how are you going to be able to accomplish those different integration points after the fact? How is your leadership bucket going to change? How is your charitable donations going to be able to change? How are you and your travel 
opportunities or schedule is going to be able to change and the financial needs that you need. Really understanding how different your world's going to be after you sell the business is extremely important. So start talking to owners that have been through the transition that can give you things to think about, which is if this were the situation, how would you handle that and would you be happy? So really, really dive in, do some soul searching and reflecting before you start going into all the technical things that are going to need to be done. So I hope you thought the episode was enjoyable and Mike's story was awesome. If you really enjoyed it, go on to iTunes, give me a rating. Otherwise, I will see you next week.